on this episode of The Jason Wright Show. It's, I think it stands to reason the business results will not be where we want them. I don't like that answer. I think the more important answer is the impact I can have, the purpose I can have as a leader in an organization or as someone who, who wants to be led authentically. Um, I think that's where the real value is. Um, going deeper on culture and being overt around aligning around a set of principles, um, not a mission statement, not values, not, not a purpose even, because I think the foundation that principles represent uh, allow us to carry ourselves in a certain way that connects us to the values, the mission statement, and the purpose. So Hey folks, before we get started, I want to ask a favor of you. Please go out to tylerinnovators.com and check out the Tyler Innovation Pipeline. Even if you're listening over in the Ukraine, if you're listening in the UK, if you are listening in Spokane, Washington, if you are listening in LA, doesn't matter. Check out the Tyler Innovation Pipeline. This is a really cool organization right here in Tyler, Texas for innovators, for entrepreneurs, for makers. It is an awesome organization and I would ask that you check it out. I actually happen to be the chairman of the Tyler Innovation Pipeline. It is a nonprofit that encourages and supports entrepreneurship, innovation. It is a fantastic organization. And if you happen to be in the East Texas area, this Friday at 6 p.m. at the Tyler Innovation Pipeline, we are having our very first in our series of tip talks. You've heard of TED Talks. We are going to have tip talks on innovation and the speaker is none other than yours truly, where I'm going to be giving my talk, Moonshots, the DNA of innovation. It's a really cool talk where I basically trace the roots and the DNA. I, I basically give you the genome code of the moon landing and the innovation that was spawned all the way back as far as 1865 until John F. Kennedy made his literally world-changing speech at Rice University. It's so cool. Where That's the speech where he said, we are going to the moon. I'm so excited and honored to be delivering the very first tip talk. I hope if you can't make it in person that you will check it out. We will have footage of it later. But more than anything, please check out Tyler Innovation Pipeline, tylerinnovators.com. Now, enjoy the show. All right, Kyle McDowell, how you doing, brother? I'm wonderful, Jason. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Man, it's good to see you. And I had so much fun just then kind of uh, getting to know you before hitting record and and hearing what you're about. And today, I think, okay, so just to give you a little bit of background on the Jason Wright Show and how this thing started, the DNA is definitely into in entrepreneurship, business leadership. And it started out as a Texas Titans podcast where I pretty much interviewed exclusively uh, Lone Star State business owners, founders, uh, C-level executives. And then it kind of grew from there to where now um, it's just about people that are doing things well. And But there's still this, this element of entrepreneurship and business and business excellence that I always want to be a part of the Jason Wright Show. And whenever I learned of you through Philip Stutz, our mutual friend, and then I grabbed your book on Begin With We... I was like, and then I, then I saw that what you're, you're really about is culture. I thought, Amen. man, I, dude, I couldn't think of a more timely, um, 
topic to tackle because so many companies right now, the culture has changed. It has gone from concentrated, you know, central to fragmented. People are all over the place. They're working remote. Um, We've got, and I mean, I want to, I want to cover several things here, bro. I want to talk about one, how the decentralization process has completely changed culture and how companies are having to deal with this, especially those kind of, for lack of a better word, old school leaders that are like, no, I want everybody in the office. I want to, I want to have the meetings. I want to see people. I want that, you know, face-to-face time. There's that. But then there's also this whole thing that was happening well before COVID, I think, of culture mattering more than ever. Right. What I've seen in companies is that if they don't have a defined purpose, it's no longer enough to um, have the mission statement, the vision statement, whatever, on the wall. It can be perfectly crafted. It can be one of those beautiful only one clear and concise, you know, all the stuff that the strategy consultants say to have. Right. But, yeah. But if it doesn't match with especially the millennial generation's purpose for why they're in that company, it all falls apart. So knowing all that, whenever I learned what you were doing and I learned about your book, Begin With We, I was like, dude, I've got to get Kyle on the show. So thank you for making this, uh, making this time, man. Well, the pleasure is mine, and, and likewise, uh, just having a little chat with you prior to before going live was was really cool. It's good to good to meet you and learn a little bit more about what you got going on. All right, so I'm just going to start off really just uh, here's kind of a um, uh, probably more of a philosophical question mm-hmm. than anything. Company culture, what do you mean? What is it? You know, I think that word gets thrown around. I'm glad you asked that question, actually, Jason, because I think the question gets thrown around or the word gets thrown around a lot and people have different definitions and kind of view it differently. In some contexts, it's viewed negatively. The word culture is just viewed as kind of a negative as a negative word. I describe culture very, very simply as the environment, the environment in which we operate. Uh, And that can range from just how we treat each other, um, our brand and the exposure that our brand has externally. Um, and everywhere in between. But at the end of the day, it is the environment in which we operate is how I would define culture. Okay, I like that. And you're right. A lot of people don't like it, but I've found whenever I go into a client that I'm advising, you talk about culture, they're like, like I'll ask, do you have a company culture? Knowing the answer is every, every company has a culture. But then- <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Say, Absolutely. So, well, what is, your, what is your culture? Well, it's family, it's excellence, it's hard work. Okay, that's mm. your definition senior level executive, founder, mm-hmm. owner. If I bring in the receptionist or an, a, a low level so, sales associate and you're a VP, would they say the same thing? Oh, I don't know. And they, oh. don't, they don't like it too. And, yeah. you know, because culture is one of those kind of woo-woo, soft-sounding right, words. Right. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about that business leader that neglects culture and what it can mean. Why, why does that matter to an organization? Well, I mean, if, I think the, the classic or stereotypical answer to that question would be the impact that it has on the business. And it's profound, right? If the culture or the environment in which we're operating um, it's not high functioning. It's not focused on excellence. It doesn't care about one another. It's, I think it stands to reason the business results will not be where we want them. I don't like that answer. 
I think the more important answer is the impact I can have, the purpose I can have as a leader in an organization or as someone who, who wants to be led authentically. Um, I think that's where the real value is. Um, going deeper on culture and being overt around aligning around a set of principles, um, not a mission statement, not values, not, not a purpose even, because I think the foundation that principles represent uh, allow us to carry ourselves in a certain way that connects us to the values, the mission statement, and the purpose. So at the end of the day, the value is, is certainly there in the business um, results, but more importantly, having passion, purpose, and fulfillment in what I do allows me to lead in a way that puts people in a position for them to be successful and everybody wins. So I think that's, that's the real value is the personal development that comes and the satisfaction that comes with leading in this way. All right, Kyle. And I want to ask you a question because the world has changed, uh, mm-hmm. so much from, I think you and I are pretty close to the same age. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, it blows my mind these days that an organization that seemingly has come about during this time of, Hey, you better have the company's mission aligned with the employee's purpose and why they get up and, you know, the Simon Sinek, uh, you better understand your why or you're, mm-hmm. or you're just not going to be successful. Mm-hmm. And then that company, you will see some 28 year old bring the company to their knees because the company didn't exercise that quote unquote purpose or culture in the way they felt they should. How in this environment can business leaders ensure that, because it's all about team, right? And if you've got one team member that is, and I, I thought about this before we got on, I was like, okay, you know, and I, and again, I'm not going to get into some kind of, you know, whether it was right or whether it was wrong, but we know what's happened in sports with kneeling and that sort of thing. So you've got an organization, mm-hmm. you've got a culture mm-hmm. and you want to be purposeful, but you've got one employee that can really kind of defer from the quote unquote literal team for a purpose they find they're very passionate about, and that can cause all sorts of consternation within that organization. That's one thing. You're talking about someone that has ramifications that they probably make that decision because they know their platform, and they're, sure. it's a little bit more consequential. But now we have organizations where, like I said, the 28-year-old making 40 k a year, they can have almost, in some instances, the same impact. How do you build an organization where the culture, not only is it purposeful, but you have buy-in for the team members to say, hey, my my personal purpose outside mm-hmm. of this company, while I'm in, while I'm in either virtually or physically, comes secondary to my team and the purpose that we're all in this together. What are some the, what are some actual concrete tools and tactics for a leader to try to get everyone on that same cultural page? Well, I think first it starts with the question that you asked earlier when you meet with executives, and that's how would you describe your culture? Mm. It, it does, we shouldn't limit that question to uh, the C-suite. We should we should ask that question to your point of everyone. So um, we it, when we ask the question, we get an answer whether we like it or not. And if we have a team of 25, for example, Jason, and this one outlier that you mentioned, who's got a lot going on externally and they're kind of maybe some paths are crossing. If we go through that process and ask every single person, it can be an anonymous survey, however you like to ask the question, but we need to understand from the team, first of all, how we are performing in terms of allowing people to be their best. 
and not necessarily being cookie cutter version of their best. Because at the end of the day, look, it's work. We all have responsibilities that we must deliver, right? If, if you being you and representing some external interests um, allows you to be your authentic self and very important word, and still deliver on the company's objectives, the objectives of your role, why wouldn't I encourage that? Yeah. Why wouldn't I encourage that? I, I really want a team that, that prides itself on being authentic. You know, I say this a lot. You don't have to necessarily agree with what I say, but you'll know it's what I mean, and I respect that, and you should respect that as well. Likewise, if you come to work being your authentic self, I don't have to agree with the decisions you make uh, outside of work. I don't have to agree with a lot of things. But we have we have to agree that we're going to deliver something great on this team, and I need you to do that. Um, so I think being overt about the differences is 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 totally appropriate. Um, because again, if you want someone to deliver their best, they have to feel safe being themselves. They have to feel safe uh, that they're in an environment of trust. All right, so I, I like that. I think that's very. I, I love that. Now. Let's say that you are this um, kind of the guy that I or gal that I uh, mentioned earlier, old line executive. You're 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 used to a centralized oper- operation, and everything has kind of become detached. Um, and I'm and I call you up. And I go, Kyle. I need help. I'm having people leave left and right. I do not know how to team build in an environment where I can't get everybody under the same roof, in the same office, in the same conference room. You know, help me. What am I missing? Because I've done everything I know how to do. Where do I start to get that mojo back of camaraderie, community, and purpose, and team building that I once had when everybody was on the same floor in the same building? Where what do you tell that executive? Yeah, you know, Jason, there's been a and you mentioned this or referenced it earlier. There's been this huge shift in just our 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 entire paradigm as it relates to the work environment and. For decades or centuries, rather, the employer, well, I should say it this way, the employee essentially was asked to modify their desires, their likes, their needs uh, to match the company's uh, approach. And that's not the environment we're in today. The company now and the leaders of the company uh, should aspire to meet the employee, the team member, on their level of comfort. Now, you know, some might hear that and say, well, you know, Kyle, that's, that's, that's a little too far. That's the inmates running the asylum or, you know, whatever crude, uh, analogy you'd like to use. I disagree. I can still meet the employee and my team on their level of need. And that could be the virtual environment. That could be, you know, a a hybrid where I come in one or two days, you know, there are myriad scenarios there, but the point is, uh, the leader's obligation is to meet the employee on their level to address their needs that allow them to be their best. Um, you know, like it or not, that's the environment we're in. And the data has shown uh, since COVID that uh, a hybrid approach is likely much more beneficial in terms of business outcomes, uh, passion, fulfillment, and those types of things than a strict, you must be in the office approach. So, I think, first of all, the advice I would give that executive is you've got to be open-minded. And that is, you know, that's my response in nearly every um, category in which we might, or context that we might discuss today is you've got to be open-minded. The primary reason for that open-mindedness is there are a lot of options and employees have a lot of options to leave and go somewhere else. And that's, you know, not to be too crass, but I, I did have someone recently at a speaking engagement say to me, 
you know, my approach was very heavy on leaning towards letting the inmates run the asylum mm-hmm. uh, or, the, or the prisoners run the prison was the exact example he used. And I said, well, there's a big, big difference in this world today, sir. And that is a prisoner cannot leave. Your employees can leave. Ooh, your I team love members that. can leave. Um, and I think well, that was his reaction as well. Thank you. He kind of <laughs> sat back and goes, oh, okay. And as soon as we start as leaders start to realize that our greatest asset within the organization is not the product or service we sell, it's the people that build that product and service. As soon as we're, we realize that and we evangelize and align around that, uh, these types of conversations go much more easily. Now, um, there are environments in which you, you must be in person, right? And there are environments that are a little bit more onerous on the employee that require travel, require coming into an office or requiring to going to a client's office. You know, those are all obligations of the responsibility that responsibilities that come with the role. So we've got to allow those to continue to be. Um, we just it's it's scenario and situational based. But the only way you really identify the right scenario and the right situation is by being overt and having the conversation with the team member to make sure that I'm meeting them on their level. All right. So I want to throw one out to you. It's like, all right. So you've you've come to me and Kyle. I mean, my God, you got the pedigree, and I understand you worked your way up through school, community college, to one of the top MBA programs in the world. And, but you've told me all this, and my answer, brother, is I pay my people well. It's yeah. all about the money, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do you What do you respond to that guy with? You know, I've been in that environment, um, and that is the toughest environment to drive change um, when the leader or leaders of the organization kind of rest on the laurels that have put them in the position they're in today. Um, it's, it's not an irrational reaction. I think it's short-sighted and I think it, um, it, it limits the, it limits the growth potential of the company. And why is that? Because you're limiting the growth potential of the members of the team. Amen. Um, right. So yes, it, it, it is. I've, I've worked in that environment where literally a CEO said it's all about the results to me. Um, and I can't disagree with that, especially to the founder of the company, but I just believe there's a way to get there that allows everybody to really be their best versus focusing only on those results. I, I, I agree, man. And so I guess it was, uh, the, the, the podcast audience is probably sick of me doing this. <laughs> Daniel, Daniel Pink wrote drive, correct? Did you, did sure. You, okay. Yep. All right. Yep. All right. So one of the things that he says in that book that you probably remember is, Still to this day, that executive, you know, probably I'd say somewhere around eight out of 10 executives say, okay, what should the carrot be at the end of the stick? They yeah. say it's money. And yeah. it, that's what everybody still thinks, yet no scientific evidence, no research has ever proven that that is the case. And now more than ever, and this is what I'm trying to get my clients to understand. It's not about, you, you can, uh, first of all, I go into them in a practical term. I say, hey, guess what? You can save yourself money, especially when they want to talk bonuses. And I'd like to get mm-hmm. your take on this. You know, when I talk to a client about their bonus structure, I will ask them, do you give bonuses? Yep, every year around Christmas. I'm like, wow, how 2022 of you. <laughs> and, then, and then I go, okay, well, how do you score or determine how much the bonus is? So, well, we'll just... You know, depending on what kind of year we've had, we'll like have a certain amount. So, okay. So you bring it down to the individual and say the the, the bonus, I'm going to give a $5,000 bonus. And the first thing I ask them is, how did you arrive at giving employee X $5,000? Well, that's yep. what I'm giving all of them. And the first thing I said, or I tell them is like, wow. well, you're nuts because here's the deal. 
I happen to have done an audit on all your employees. We've done the one-on-ones and you're talking about a performer right there that first of all, good news, you could save yourself some money because if you max out your bonuses per individual at $2,000, that in your best employee, your performer, your highest performer, as long as they know that 2000 is 100% of the bonus available to them, if that's what you give them, they're going to be happy. If you just give them willy-nilly 5000 and you can't tell them where that ranks, yeah. Yeah. they're going to be like, well, was there, they're going to first say, was there 6000 available? And if, if so, why didn't I get 6000 Right. But it's amazing, man, how many employers don't understand exactly what you're talking about, that it's like, it's not just about money, it's about me knowing I'm performing my best and knowing that I've got that feedback, I, I, am I right? You're absolutely right. And you've, you've kind of ventured into an area that, that, that I would kind of describe as the employee value proposition. Mm, yeah. Um, um, and I'm going to circle back to your exact example. But, at, you know, at the end of the day, Jason, I, I, I'm convinced we all of us, not the leader, not the, the newest intern, we all want three things as it relates to being valued in the organization. One, we want to add value. And by adding value, I'm, I'm given the opportunity to deliver something uh, that I'd be proud of, something that furthers the objective of the team or of the company. I want to add value. Number two, B, I want to be valued, right? And how, how, am I, how am I shown value? And that's through the bonus process. That's through promotional opportunities. That's through the leader saying, I appreciate you. I mean, literally just saying, I appreciate you. Be valued. And lastly is exactly what you touched on, and that's the C of the ABCs, and that is connecting the value that I've delivered to the ultimate person or company that received the benefit of the product or service that we sell. So the work I did here resulted in this satisfaction of a customer or a client here, or it resulted in moving something forward uh, on this side. So, because too often, by the way, especially in the bigger companies, um, we expect our employees to be really excited about the work that they do, but they're never given the opportunity to see how that work actually drove satisfaction or advanced the company's mission or the company's objectives. So connecting that value is really important. How do you connect it? You set those expectations. And your scenario, the example you give is a great one in that if I recognize or I'm aware of how high the bonus threshold is or what my opportunity is, um, a, I'm, I'm more likely to work a little harder if I knew the range or the bands could go higher than I expected or that I understood. But more importantly, we see the opportunity, you have the opportunity to really tell someone job well done. Mm-hmm. You also have the opportunity to tell someone you didn't necessarily hit on all cylinders and we've got some work to do. But if I know the threshold is say 5,000, for example, and for some reason, somehow I get a $6,000 bonus, the value that I've delivered a is obvious, but more importantly, that B is B valued is so clearly obvious now because I know the threshold was X, but I got X plus. Yep. Yep. Well, and that's the thing too, that I think in, in addition to just not always focusing, focusing so much on here, throw money at the employees and they'll be happy. Yeah. I think that there's a real opportunity right now. A lot of it, and now granted, look, I, I face it. We all face this whole dissemination of employees all over the, I mean, my uh, oldest, I told you, just graduated from the University of Alabama, Roll Tide, Philip Stutz, if you're listening Congrats to this. Congrats again. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Um, she, her first job is going to be remote. And I think that this, while it, I can see if I'm an employer and I've got employees all over the country, that can be a challenge in and of itself. But also going back to what Daniel Pink writes and what you are talking about in Begin With We is you now have this built-in opportunity 
to allow one of the most important things that an employee could ever feel, and that is autonomy and creativity. How yes. you're going to own your own workflow. And as long as you, and again, it's not just about the results. It's not just about the outcome. It's not just being busy and getting a bunch of stuff done, but getting it done the right way. But as long as those results are in fact meeting the company objectives, how you do it, the autonomy to get there, I think we have an incredible opportunity, no? Amen. Amen. Now there's a challenge with that opportunity and I'll, I'll go there in just a second, but let me just circle back to a comment you made earlier. And that's around this, this innate desire to just throw money at it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you're spot on. It's not just your opinion. The data agrees, uh, both from an employee satisfaction perspective and an employee survey perspective, the things that matter to me most rarely does money show up as number one. Yeah. It's usually, it's, it, it's, it's not uncommon to be two, but it's usually three or four, if not number five. So you're spot on in that. Um, now, the challenge that comes with the scenario that you described entering the workforce as as a remote employee is, I mean, we want to be connected, right? We're tribal by nature. Yep. So that you do that is a compromise that has to be made uh, for someone that's 100% virtual, especially out of the gate. Um, that's a challenging scenario. Um, but the beauty, uh, I think, completely outweighs that 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 challenging scenario, and that is. I am a full, I, I am trusted, A, because if you're allowing me to do my work from anywhere in the world, any environment, as long as my results are there, I think it sends a message of trust. And trust is an absolutely critical component in someone delivering their best because I trust you that you'll do what we need you to do. You're going to deliver in a way that makes all of us proud, and we're going to reward you for that. Um, I don't think leaders usually start with that perspective. They start with, you have to earn that trust. And you know, I'm not saying that's the wrong approach, but certainly if you if you trust someone enough to hire them into the organization, to work remote, to deliver a product or service without ever having them come into an office, you have to trust them. You know, I used to say in my, when I was back in, in my corporate America days, I would say, and I meant this so sincerely, I don't care if you work from the beach. I don't care from where you work. You have a set, uh, we have agreed on a set um, a list of d- deliverables that are on your plate. If those deliver are delivered with the quality that we both agree is needed, why do I care? Right. Why do I care? Um, so I, I, I think the benefit and the upside of, of having that remote environment from day one sends the right message. It allows c- for creativity. It encourages uh, ingenuity and innovation. Um, and I will say this. I'll, I'll add this, Jason. Um, the, the, the opportunity to be kind of... Um, uh, uh, what's the right word? The opportunity to be kind of jaded uh, by tenured employees in an on-site uh, environment is now gone. Mm, We've all been in that environment, point. right? So I joined the company. I'm so eager and optimistic to add value, and I'm really looking forward to delivering uh, for this role. And I'm in my first day of training side-by-side with someone who's been there 10 years, and he, and he whispers to me, yeah, they tell us to do it this way, but um, here's how I do it, okay? <laughs> so right out of the gate, I'm like, wow, these guys, the leaders don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, so I think the opportunity to really start and stay optimistic about the role is, is probably um, exponentially higher in, your, in that scenario. Man, I like that. I never even thought about that. And of course now, bless her heart, she's got a, a type A dad that does business advisory and coaching and who has already said, okay, because this is going to be a sales environment you're going to be in from home from day one, we're going to create our own metrics. I'm going to look at what they create for you and I will be calling you every day and I'm going to teach you BJ Fogg's strategy, James Clear strategies. You know, bless bless both of my daughter's hearts. Poor thing. You know? Poor thing. <laughs> so, but I'm going to be on them. But you know, one of the things you just said there that's so cool, man, that I didn't even think about this for these young people graduating and going into an immediate virtual environment is 
they there is no getting to the office first and yeah. just being really good at the, the political game. I mean, you had the opportunity for it to just be all about performance, kind of like uh, – I don't know if you saw the movie The Big Short, but, uh, Christian oh, yeah. Bale's character, the weirdo, you know, statistician, you know, playing drums and jamming out to Metallica that yep. no one ever saw, yep. but, but everybody knew was this wicked genius kind of hiding off somewhere away from New York, you know, making these amazing predictions. You had the opportunity to do that. It's like, oh my gosh, we don't know who this Rylan Wright is that's in Tuscaloosa, but she's crushing her numbers. <laughs> so that it, it, the performance gets to speak for itself. So. Okay, let's. I like that. That that's a very amazing thing. So love oh, it. And and God willing, that'll be the case. All right. So I want to talk now about your book. Okay. I have hopefully proven that you're the expert, or you've proven it, and we've we've gotten to talk some shop for this audience. Why did you decide to write the book? What led you to? Because we talked about it offline. Writing a book. A lot of people think that when you get a book out there, especially one like yours that has seen some immediate success. They think, oh, well, this is just someone who had a great idea. They were smart, and all they had to do is, like, put it on paper, and boom. You know, the rest is history. It's a bitch. Writing a book is an absolute bitch, and you've done it, and tell me why. What made you decide to do this? Well, I I had an opportunity um, to step away from corporate America after 20, nearly 29 years, and um, found myself... Uh, at a crossroad. And the crossroad was, do I want to go back into an environment that um, has been very good to me for nearly three decades? I'm a very lucky guy. I've worked very hard, but I'm also, I would consider myself a lucky guy. Do I want to go back to that environment and lead another turnaround? And when I say turnaround, there's a, there's a theme throughout my career of, you know, taking maybe a little bit less or lower functioning organizations uh, maybe some culture issues, maybe a little toxicity and turning those around into high functioning cultures of excellence. That was a, that's a theme throughout my career. So the crossroad was, do I go back into that environment and put my stamp on yet another organization um, or plan B, which ultimately uh, became the path I chose was get my style of leadership out there, evangelize the message. But because look, I'm not naive. There are um, countless books on leadership, countless books on culture, countless approaches to, to, to how you get the most out of a team. Um, I think what makes what I have to say in the message I'm, um, um, preaching for lack of a better word is, uh, there is some academic, uh, kind of, um, uh, come to the table with some academic, uh, chops, but also experience. And I think, what we see so often in leadership books today and leadership gurus is they've done one or the other. They've got a lot of background in academia and they have data uh, at their fingertips to say why this approach is better than that approach. And that's certainly um, an approach. Uh, And then the other is those that have spent a tire amount, you know, lots of years in corporate America kind of observing, doing those types of things as well. Um, But I'd like to say I, I bring both. So I was at the crossroad, Jason, and I realized uh, for me to get the most amount of fulfillment and really be passionate about the next chapter of my life, um, I needed to take option B. And if I didn't, I would be the hypocritical leader that uh, I kind of reference and refer to a lot in the book. It's like, do as I say, not as I do. So if I really wanted to have an impact and fulfill what I now truly believe is my life's purpose, and that's helping leaders be better, 
uh, and be fulfilled and passionate about their role as well as uh, uh, building cultures of excellence. I really believe that's my purpose now. I had to pursue that. Uh, and for me, the best way to do it was to tell lots of stories, share the principles that I developed uh, when I was in corporate America and the results that came uh, as, as a result of delivering and living those principles. And the best way to do that was via a book. And uh, it took me about a year and a half to write. And I can't let your your uh your lead in go without a reaction you're absolutely right it's a bitch it's not it's not it was not a fun process but uh i'm really proud of the way it turned out as you should be brother it's a good one and the thing is that's that's cool about it you know talking about the academic versus kind of for lack of a better word uh, and not to knock any of my former professors or academic friends out there but the quote-unquote real world experience that you bring into what you know, books like yours, in my opinion, are real life textbooks. They're, they're the ones that like whenever I do an online course or something, I, I can't even imagine going and grabbing uh, something even from Harvard Business Review or any textbook. Instead, I'm going to go grab a book like yours and talk about organizational behavior and how you build teams and why that matters. Now, before we get into the uh, the, the, the 10 we's, uh, I do want to ask you one very important question. And this is for, I want to say it's for someone coming out of school, but man, this, this applies to everybody. Kind of talk about what it means to be a good team member. Oh, wow. You know, I've done a lot of podcasts and no one's asked that question. I right. love that question. Sweet. Um, to be a good team member, you've got to a, recognize your value and your role within the team. Mm-hmm. But I also think you need to understand the role and value that others bring in that same team. Um, and we need to live every single day with those things in mind. In other words, Jason, if I recognize you're a team member of my, a teammate of mine and you've got a deliverable or you're working on something and you're up or you're down, I need to recognize when you're having those uh, those ups and downs and be there to kind of pick you up and bolster you when you need that help yep. because I need the same. Uh, I'm going to have my, my ups and downs and I need you to, to kind of pick me up as well. Um, it's doing what I say uh, when I say I'm going to do something, which is one of the 10 ways. I'm sure we'll get into that. When I say I'm going to do something that benefits the team, you can take it to the bank, buddy. I'm doing it uh, because if I don't, I've let not just myself down and my brand down, but I've disappointed and let the team down. And that matters most. At the end of the day, I'll leave it. I'll leave it with this, and that is recognizing that you are not the only person in this equation. You are one of a few, or one of many. Uh, you're valued. You're important. You need to participate in the things that we've got going on. But you recognize that you're a part of something bigger. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, that's that's fantastic. And you know, it's crazy because any of us that have worked that in the corporate environment, we know that you get stuck in these team situations and there's always the just over the top type a person that comes in and they're going to drive everything. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's going to be the real submissive person that, and I guess it's, you know, we've, uh, the, uh, Briggs Myers, you know, all the different assessments have who's who and whatever. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I always learned is what you just said. It was that by God's grace, I figured this out early on. If you can quickly assess where the strengths lie in each individual and then start to leverage that for the benefit of the team. But man, it's not that it was me. I, again, I say by God's grace, I just, I had knew enough about interpersonal communication to kind of figure that out. And, yeah. but if you can be the person that just goes, okay, 
You know you got Uber Type A over there, so how do you leverage that? And they will come through when you need them, but they've yep. got but you got to figure out. And then how do you bring that person up that's just kind of wanting to sit in the corner? And but the could the good news is usually the person that sits quietly, they're the workhorse, they're the hedgehog. They'll do whatever yep. you ask them to. Just sure. don't expect them to step up and say, Hey, I'll do that. Like what you, right. you mentioned what we talked about before we got on. So I think that's really good. All right. So but Jason, by the way, there's so much value in both of those team members. Oh, absolutely! Right? right? We want we want Hell the yeah. we want the Uber overachiever guy. We want that gal to reach for the stars and be the next you. Absolutely. For example, Freaking, you want right? Yeah. But we also need those people that are quite content keeping their head down and just muscling through every day. We need we need we and we need to appreciate and respect that entire spectrum in between. I got to tell you, one of my favorite corporate America stories. You know, I escaped quicker than you did. You know, I, I, I got out of that prison a little quicker than you did. So God bless you, brother. Um, uh, I'm still, I, you know, I, I, maybe I'm still on parole or something, but I, I'm not going back if I can help it. I'll go into hiding. Do you have, do you have the ankle bracelet? Do you have uh, the, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll go to the witness protection program if I have to. I'm not, I'm not going back. So I, I had been working. I was, I'd been a part of a startup and our only contract, our only contract was with Enron. <laughs> and so, wow. And we ended up doing really well with it. But nevertheless, you, everybody, I don't have to go into, you know, the story of what happened mm -hmm. to Enron. So kind of where you were just a lot earlier in my career, I was at this crossroads and I didn't buy, again, by God's grace, I didn't have to go do anything really quickly. And so I had started out in management consulting and the whole Enron gig, which was a basically a house of cards. And so yeah. after these experiences of being in service industries and consulting and then the Enron debacle, I thought to myself, okay, actually, oh, and I'd also done a stop at, uh, at WorldCom for God's sake. I mean, I worked oh my for, goodness. yeah, you know, I had worked <laughs> for both leg. WordCom and Enron dude. So I'm like, what is going on? Might've been you, man. And, I don't yeah, know. No, I'm like, man, dude, I just <laughs> had some bad juju following me. And so I took some time off. And I thought, okay, the next company I go to work with is going to be old line. You're going to be able to, they're going to have a pristine balance sheet. Everybody that hears their name is going to know exactly how they right. make their money and, uh, and is going to have heard of them. And so I start looking at GE. I'm reading, Jack Welch was about to retire and I just read his first book, Winning or whatever it was, where, and he, he describes in there his successor, who one of which was up for, it was like his Jim Mac. Jim McInerney that went to 3M, uh, Bob Nardelli that went to Home Depot. Sure. And then, of course, ML gets the job. Well, they I knew they had this rotational executive program they were famous for. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking. I thought, okay, I, I'm not going to go work for GE. And I said, I said I'm going to look at Home Depot. That's interesting. I don't want to go work in the store, but I wonder if they've got any corporate gigs that I might fit for. Well, I look, and they've just launched this executive leadership program that was basically the GE program now at Home Depot. And I was like, oh, this has Bob Nardelli's fingerprints all over it. I can, I know exactly what he's done. So I submit my resume one day and 15 minutes later, I kid you not, 15 minutes later, one of their inbound recruiters calls me and says, and says what do you know about our, our CEO? And I, of course I had Nardelli's uh, biography pretty much memorized at that point, both from the book and then I just did some research. And so they bring us in and we do this interview process a whole day. They fly us all in to work, depending on where we are in the country for this mm -hmm. first class. And the best interview I've ever done was this one. And I, now I'll finally land this plane. They put, I think, five of us at a table in like an auditorium setting. And they say, okay, they throw down a case study. They say, Home Depot is looking at acquiring this business. 
one of you has to be legal. One of you has to be marketing. One of you has to be, um, I guess, I don't know, HR, whatever. You guys decide what your roles are and, and, fi- and then make a recommendation. Does Home Depot acquire this business or not? And it's, uh, it was so wow. cool, man. And for, again, I, I don't know why, but I was like, oh, I see what they're doing here. It doesn't yes. matter what we recommend. They want to see right. who's going to be able to interact with these yep. strangers and bring them all together. Yep. So that was one of the first experiences. And, and, I, and I, I did pretty well in that scenario and got everybody to kind of come around and kind of felt their strengths out. So but, what job did you take, Jason? So I took, I think I actually did HR. I took, yeah. I took HR, Brilliant. I think, and uh, that way I could kind of tell, hey, you look like you would be good at this. And, you know, just kind of, <laughs> I kind of let that shield me is mm-hmm. how I got to choose what I thought people should do. Well played. And so it was really cool. But even back then, it was that they were starting to see that if you can work within a team, well, that's, that's pretty important. Now it's even more important because I think that, People want to be a part of some, a team that is special to lift each other up. And so if, right. you, if you can crush that, it makes a huge difference. And that's where, in that scenario, it was the first kind of like flash dating deal that I ever saw. I was like, oh, this is cool. And then it went on from there, just kind of, kind of honing that skill. And if you can get that, man, to the listener, if you can figure these things out that we're about to talk about. With, and I only say that because I want to tee it up. When we start to go through your wheeze, Mm-hmm. If you can execute on what you have written, you will you would be infinitely even better than than I was in that scenario. And if that were to become real life, because you, sure. you just get it. So anyway, I just had to tell you a war story from Thank the corporate you days. <laughs> yeah, no. Hey, what an interesting kind of indoctrination to how the organization thinks, right? That's a well. That's a un- have you have you heard of the Stanford Prison Experiment? Oh, dude, are you kidding? It reminds me of that. You know, oh, it reminds it, me of that, which went very differently than, than yeah. your scenario. But it's so, yeah, the Stanford Prison Experiment. I told my daughter uh, she needs to watch that movie. I said, if you want to see something crazy about the uh, human behavior gone wrong, yeah. yeah, dude, I had read the experiment, and that's what made me watch it. Have you seen the movie? I have. Oh, yeah, I have. It is insane, dude. And in some of the prisoners, like that one dude that was the worst, afterwards he's like, I don't know. I don't care. You know, yep. like that's just, yep. that's what the game was like. Holy Callous. crap, dude, you're an ass. Well, you know, but there, it's not, it's not a real departure from the way that many of us dude. have been led, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like you give me a little bit of authority mm-hmm. and I'm going to make you, I'm going to let, make sure, you know, I am the one with the authority, right? So some of us, and there's a, a theme throughout the book that, um, is, is pretty conspicuous. And that is a boss and a leader are nowhere near the same thing. Oh, absolutely. Right. Right. And, you know, it sounds cliche to say that, but the fact is many, many people when promoted into a boss type position or where they have direct reports, they almost lose their identity in that. And, and by the way, they also forget about the qualities that they loathed in their boss prior to that. They've been given a pass to now perpetuate that bad behavior and, and, and lead like a boss versus, versus a leader. So it's not the Stanford prison experiment, embarrassingly enough, is not that far of a departure from what we've seen. Um, and, and that's where, you know, I feel like the, the opportunity to get so much more uh, in terms of your, your, your fulfillment is, is really lost leading that way. Absolutely. I, I was going to ask you a question. I still want to ask you what the 
like if you would be willing to share one of the worst boss stories you ever had, but let's, let's, I mean, I think that'd be kind of fun. Just talk about horrible bosses. My first job ever at computer science. Like Corporation. Too. Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> we, we, write that down. Hey, <laughs> Pam, put that in my good idea folder. Um, so, <laughs> so well played, well played. Yeah. I thought you liked that. So, uh, the first company I ever worked for, man, I had this boss that was just horrible. And the, I mean, and so one time, her boss had asked me for some information and I sat in this cubicle up in the, on the executive wing of this division of computer sciences corporation where I worked and her office was right outside of my big giant magnum cube. It was like, you know, we're not going to give you an office cause that might go to your head. So we're just going to give you these four walls that we can connect together, but you don't have an office. I'm like, okay. It's an offical. It was so stupid. It's it was an offical. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And so my, her boss who ultimately, I guess, was both of our bosses, but in it, but he asked uh, he asked me to give him some data or something. So I I don't know. It was like some some spreadsheets, and then so I gave him what he wanted, and Kyle, that day at five o'clock, she goes blazing oh, by boy. my cubicle, doesn't yeah. say a word, slings the door open as hard as she can, and it hits the wall and was storming out. And I'm like, and again, I knew enough about her behavior. I'm like the hell did I do wrong? And then the next day she comes in and gives me this ass chewing Yeah, because I had given our boss information. He asked for to, and by the way, I'd been at the company six months. I mean, I'm still green. I told her, I told her, I said, Hey, you have to understand something. I'm not politically savvy enough to try to sandbag you. Right. I don't, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Thank yeah. you for that credit. I mean, I didn't say mm-hmm. that, but, mm-hmm. but I was like, that was one of the worst bosses I ever had. What? And so that, to your point, boss versus leader, she was absolutely not a leader. Yeah. She was just a boss that would exercise her authority and whew, rough, well, rough, rough you know, experience early on. The reason for that behavior is obvious. Right. And I think that's what a lot of bosses struggle with and that self-confidence and absolutely. insecurity. Absolutely. Right? And once you can let go of that, uh, you know, you and I were chatting about the growth mindset uh, prior to prior to going live here. And and once you can, as a leader or anyone with direct reports, actually for anyone in general, but especially in corporate America, if you can set that ego aside, set that, um, you know, don't allow your lack of self-confidence to to invade how you treat those that are in your sphere it is so enlightening. It is so rewarding. The day that you can admit, I don't have to know everything. Oh, it's awesome. It's right? awesome. Isn't it? It's liberating. Uh, so I think, you know, obviously that was the situation or the, the, the problem in that situation. That was because she wasn't secure enough to know, Hey, I got a good relationship with Jason. I, I know he's not trying to undercut me. Whatever the boss asked for was probably the right thing. He's the right guy. Yeah. Now, if I wanted to, if I want in, in, in practical terms, if I'm in her shoes and I, would like the, the opportunity to at least review what you're giving, just say that. Just, hey, you know, next time, just give me a quick preview before you send it off because I want to make sure we're capturing our message appropriately. But, you know, that is, that, and there's a theme of that throughout the book, and that is self-confidence. You, to be a really effective leader, you have to recognize you don't know what you don't know. You have to be very clear and overt about that. And as a matter of fact, be so overt about it that you hire people, that you admit so publicly they know things that you don't know because that's how you build a solid team, right? Is someone's strong here, someone's weak there, they complement each other and we've got a great team. I love that, dude. And that's one of the things that is just, I have just learned in recent years and within business school, man, I used to think 
so less of myself because I couldn't whip the hell out of a spreadsheet. Whenever, yeah. whenever we were figuring weighted average cost of capital or trying to do some sort of, you know, um, net present value of an acquisition or something, mm-hmm. dude, I just couldn't. And I thought I have to be able to whip a spreadsheet to be successful. I mean, at the time I was like, I want to go be a private equity guy and be really fancy and wear my fleece vest. And, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I need that life, you know. I got to have my Range Rover in Highland Park Village, wear my fleece vest, you know, doing lubing the deals, baby. And right and so I was like, and to do that, I've got to be able to just create these kick-ass spreadsheets with all these macros and automatic formulas. I mean, just you know. And then, then all of a sudden, I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute. When you le- read about Steve Schwartzman and hell Ray Dalio and these guys that were history history miners, no, what they knew was the questions to ask and to be able to say, hey, you are really good at this and I'm not. And then you bring that down into the, like right now, I finally, again, let's bring this to all the way to the marriage. My wife and I, one, my wife is my hero and she is oh, infinitely, dude, she is the most badass woman I've ever met in my life and I get to be Love married it. to her. And I have no problem telling her I will get lost in a paper bag. I used to be the typical dude that would get really frustrated because I'm horrible yeah. with directions, but I need yeah. to be good at them because I'm a dude and that's what we're supposed to do. Now I'm like, no, babe, you tell me where we're going. I will go where you tell me because I'm not good at that. And you're like a freaking honing pigeon. So let's do this. Liberating. It's, and it, it is, it is one of the most liberating things in the world. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. okay, well, we will end Jason Wright's counseling session and, <laughs> and brag session about his horrible bosses and his ability to admit he sucks on spreadsheets and directions to talk about the first we we do the right thing always. Go talk about that. So, if I may, let me just give Absolutely. some quick context Please here, do. right? So, um, it, throughout that thirty-year career, twenty twenty-nine-year career, I mentioned earlier, I spent, admittedly, the first twenty twenty-five years being the boss that uh, I'm not proud to say that I was. I mean, I, I'd forged great relationships, I delivered great results, but I found myself really not as um, connected to what I was doing as I felt I should be. I felt as if I'd lost passion. I'd lost the optimism that I entered, that I had when I entered corporate America. But I told myself the next opportunity I have, this is probably 2015 or 2016, the next opportunity I have uh, when I take on a big organization, I'm going to throw the last 20-something years out the window and I'm going to start and lead in a way that I've always wanted to be led. Warts and all. I was going to be me authentically. And if it worked, maybe I'd write a book. If it didn't work, I would uh, just kind of rally and, and see where that where that took me. So be careful what you wish for. So I had that opportunity in 2016. And I uh, was fortunate enough to land a gig. Very, very purpose driven work um, where I led the enrollment centers for the Affordable Care Act, wow. as well as the uh, the enrollment centers and service centers for 1-800-Medicare. So very, very important work. Was that um, was wait, real quick? Was that was during your time at CVS? No, that was prior to CVS. Okay, because called Maximus. Okay, and here's why I asked that. This is crazy about how our I told you our backgrounds are very similar. I was doing some advisory work at the federal level when CVS became basically the chief player of the Affordable Care Act in these uh, these little uh, I guess when they started decentralizing clinics and this sort of thing, mm-hmm. they played a huge, mm-hmm. they were a huge role in the prescription drug portion of right the affordable care act. So yeah, yep. it's, it's crazy. I knew you had that CVS bag. I was like, wow, that's crazy. We were doing. Yeah, this no, a little, little bit different context, but um, so, so I, I told myself 
I wanted to do things differently, let the chips fall wherever they would fall. And the night before I was to meet with the top uh, 40, 50, yeah, probably 50 people, leaders of the organization that I was inheriting, um, I had that gut check and said, okay, you said that you were going to do things differently. What are you going to tell these people to kind of turn this culture around, to lead a culture of greatness or excellence? What are you going to do? So it's the night before I'm in my hotel room, laptop uh, wide open and a blank presentation. Uh, I had no idea what I was going to say, but I knew I needed to be concise and I knew I needed to create some type of rallying cry that says, here is the kind of manifesto for this team. Here are our rules of the road going forward. Whatever I'm about to share with you, team, will be what governs how we treat each other first, because I've always been a big believer, treat each other well behind the scenes. There's no way we're not positioned to succeed externally. Um, so that night, I just uh, started tapping away on the laptop and ended up, um, and this is, this is uh, with, with no pre-planning, with nothing in mind, I ended up with 10 sentences. And each of those sentences started with the word we. And they went in kind of a, a almost chronological order, and we'll jump on. You know, I'll, I'll chat about that here in a moment. But I knew no matter what I wanted to evangelize, what messaging I needed the team to pick up from me, first and foremost, every single thing we do will be grounded in the fact that we will do the right thing always. And the, the that that one word sentence after we do the right thing is the word always, and that is so conspicuous and obvious. Uh, and I, I lean on that a lot because in corporate America, especially in very complex environments, we're also, we're often greeted with opportunities that allow us to maybe cut a corner here, absolutely, maybe not do our very best over there. So, you know, using the word always is very purposeful on my part. So I, I, I entered that room the next morning and I said, guys, this, these will be our rules of the road. And I had, you know, some mixed messaging coming back at me. I had some furled eyebrows. I had some looks of, uh, you know, uncertainty, um, but I am, you know, I'll kind of cut to the chase here, uh, fast forward six years later and the 10 we's, which are, as you mentioned, the foundation for the book, uh, begin with, we, they are still the cultural manifesto of that same organization that I left years ago. That's awesome, man. Uh, yeah. So we kicked it off with, we do the right thing always. And I believe if we set that foundation, by the way, when, when we are in times of rough waters, if we have that foundation established that listen, no matter what happens, we're going to do the right thing. It makes dealing with those rough waters and it makes the decision-making process much more efficient and you're aligned much, much, uh, more significantly, I would say. I think that is so money. And because the thing is, it also, it gives you the opportunity to be able to to push back in a way that says, no, wait a minute. Are you really asking me to compromise this thing that we have determined is of such importance? Because that's what you're doing here. I know you don't mean right. to, but really right. you are. And, you know, Southwest Airlines just do a similar thing. Anytime there was some initiative that was a capital expenditure, the question was always thrown back at the person proposing, does this help us to maintain our position as the highest quality, low cost carrier in the world? If it yes. doesn't, if it doesn't contribute to that mission, then don't even present it to me. If it does, we'll hear you out. It's the same thing with what you're saying. When you just set that tone, again, you, it gives you such a great way to be able to throw it back to someone who might be going, "Yeah, but this one time, but but we said well, always, yeah, and, 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 always, right?" Um, but what we struggle with a lot is what is the right thing? Because mm. Jason, your reaction to a scenario sure. might, might take us down one path. I'll take us down another, but doesn't necessarily mean either of us are right or wrong. So I define it as this. 
when making a decision or behaving in a specific way, you've got to look at it through three lenses or three cohorts, if you will. Number one is, is this what the decision we're about to make? Does it do right by the company? And listen, I'm the most employee friendly guy you'll ever meet, but the employee doesn't exist without the company, right? Yeah. So we've got to prioritize the company. If I'm making a decision, is it the right thing always in the minds or eyes of the company? And then number two is the crew, the team. Is it, is it, Am I doing the right thing? Am I benefiting or, or driving a, a benefit or uh, advancing our objectives for the team on the crew level? Is this decision uh, going to adversely affect someone on the team? I need to know that if so. And then lastly, the client. Um, so, and, and when we walk through these decision-making uh, trees, if you will, if you, if you evaluate using those three cohorts, um, it gives you guide rails to say, okay, one of the three groups is going to benefit from this decision. The other two are going to be adversely affected. Let's walk down that path to see if, if we can mitigate some of that damage. If you can get two of the three, you're doing a little bit better. And obviously, if you can make a decision or, or travel down a path that benefits all three of those cohorts, there's a, it's a no-brainer. Like you're doing the right thing. So a lot of times people say, well, the right thing is so subjective. And it is. But if you look at it through these lenses of who's impacted by your decision, I think it makes the process much easier. I love that. All right. We lead by example. That's the second yeah. we. What does it look like? Yes, sir. Yeah. So if you're going to lead, if you're, if you're a leader in an organization, um, and by the way, that doesn't mean you have a big team. doesn't mean you could have zero direct reports and be a leader in an organization. Right. Um, but the best way to do the right thing, number one, is to do what? Lead by example. Yeah. So, you know, you talked about the Southwest Airlines example, right? If someone brings an example or brings a scenario to the table that we'd like to consider for, you know, could improve our uh, employee engagement or uh, could improve our, 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 the service we deliver to our customers. When that decision or that scenario is teed up, um, I have an opportunity to, let, let's pretend for a moment that the scenario that's been brought my way is a really bad example, really bad example. As the leader, if I react to that in a way that tells the person who brought the idea that it was not a good idea mm -hmm. uh, in a way that kind of belittles them or minimizes their impact, A, they're never going to come back with an idea because I just shot them down. And I'm not leading by example of doing the right thing because it's not the right thing to belittle someone when they bring an idea to the table. You want to encourage and, you know, and, and reward that. Uh, the point is there, whether it is um, a massive decision about the organization that you're facing, whether it is walking down the hallway uh, and you have an employee walking your way or a team member walking your way, and I've got my head down on my phone, that's not doing the right thing. And that's not leading by example. I can't expect my team to be high-functioning, care about each other if I've got my face buried on my phone walking through the hallway. Yeah. So there's a spectrum of things and talks in terms of leading by example. I want my team to be collaborative and work with one another, then I've got to do the same. Uh, so leading by example, and by the way, I should add, <laughs> you're leading by example already. Absolutely. Good or bad. That's your choice. Absolutely. Right? You're, you're leading by example. So so make that making that decision to lead by example in a way that I'd be proud of, the way that, um, you know, if it were replayed in the press or if it was to go public, whatever that decision is or whatever that outcome is, can you look yourself in what I call the mirror of truth and say we did the right thing? And leading by example is the best way to lead, uh, to do the right thing. Love it. We say we're going to do, we say we say what we're going to do, then we do it. I think this is one of the ones that, brother, not only with employees, like facing the customers, but facing our internal. Right. Dude, all your credibility rests on that. This is one of my Bingo. favorite ones that you that you nail here. Bingo. It's your brand, right? It's your personal brand. It's your reputation. It's, 
it's it's so many things and if look make no mistake if you're part of a team someone's counting on you yep so if you make a commitment to do something you must deliver that uh because because not only does your personal brand suffer if you fail to deliver on that the team suffers uh and nobody wants to be a part of a team that takes their obligations to the team the rest of the team lightly um, so you've got to be very overt and, dir- and, and direct and saying what you're going to do, what you're not going to do is almost as equally as important, especially as a leader. Uh, and then you got to do it. You, yep. you just, there's no exception. We're not an, we're not an organization of talk. We're an organization of action. Um, so, so number three is, so to, to back up, if we're going to do the right thing, we agree that leading by example is doing the right thing. Let me get a little bit more practical and tangible and say, okay, now that my leading by example will be, I'm going to follow through. I'm going to deliver exactly what I told you I'm going to deliver when I said I'm going to deliver it, um, which, which is really important and how it parlays into weed number four. And weed number four is we, uh, we take action. Mm. And there's a follow-on to that sentence, and it is taking action and making a mistake is okay. Being idle is not. Amen. So I would summarize that by saying, if you see something, do something, right? And I give an example earlier, kind of in jest about uh, the new hire that starts in the office. They sit down next to the person that's going to give them some shoulder to shoulder on the job training. And that person says, you know, they want us to do it this way, but here's how we really do it. In a culture of excellence, that person points out to his or her leadership to say, listen, man, you guys have us doing this this certain way, but it affects the uh, impacts the customer adversely in that way. Like, why don't we consider doing this, right? It's the, I think it's the, uh, the obligation lies with everyone in the organization. If we spot something that needs to be done differently or could be done differently, and by differently, I mean improves the objectives of the team, it improves the outcome delivered to the customer, it improves the service that we, that we offer or deliver, it is an obligation inside of a culture of excellence for someone to raise their hand and say, we got a problem. Yeah. Uh, so we've got to, we've got to take action. And now as the leader, you may not like the idea. You may, there may be great justification for why we're not already traveling down that path. Um, and you should be overt about that. Like I said earlier about, about taking, uh, about not taking action, but to recognize that there's an opportunity and not address it, at least service it to someone is a real shame. And it doesn't, uh, it, you know, if you're, if you're happy with mediocrity, that's the approach to take. Just recognize it, not do anything about it. But Jason, it, it, continuing on the on the on the path here and the continuum of of the we's is if we expect our team to take action and and avoid being idle, you have to expect mistakes. Absolutely, right. So we number five is we own our mistakes, and I truly believe we're not judged by our mistakes. We're judged by how quickly we remedy those mistakes, and most importantly, if we repeat them. So there's this continuum that's happening now, right? I want you to take action as a team member. I want you to spot and identify opportunities for improvement. And if we implement those opportunities, we're going to stumble from time to time. And the worst thing to have happen is is have the team think, well, I can't bring ideas to the table because if it doesn't work out, I'm going to be admonished or I'm going to get ridiculed or under some retribution. No, 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 no. I want people to recognize opportunities grab that ball and run with it. And if they stumble, the team and the culture of excellence that surrounds them are going to pick them up and we're going to keep running. So taking that action has to be met with an open mind that mistakes will come. But by the way, we will also flourish, right? Because you recognize the opportunity and we're going to try something different. Can I tell you a a really good, something that comes out to me or whenever you talk about doing what you say you're going to do and actually doing it and then owning your mistakes, an ancillary benefit of that that I see, Kyle, is you create an atmosphere of consistency. Yeah. And and people don't 
like, you know, not knowing what to expect. People like to know that this is going to happen. I, I, I mean, look, you know, people might get kinky and like novelty and sex, they don't want it in the workplace. They don't want to know, <laughs> is this going to work this time? Am I going to get yelled at this? No, they, they, want, they want assurance. They like right. certainty. We as humans, that's why we will vote for really shitty politicians. Hey, I'll vote for the shitty guy that I know and bring the, the, the I know those problems. I'm certain about those problems. I know what I'm getting. The but devil you know. At the devil you know. And so if, right you can, if you can do these, I think a great ancillary practice of this is like, like the, we own our mistakes. Hey, the good news is in this team, in this organization, if anybody makes a mistake, they're going to own it quickly. And how, if you want to end a fight with your spouse as quickly as possible, and you yeah. know, you've, you've screwed up the first, if you just say that was stupid, wasn't it? Immediately yeah. watch your wife go, well, baby, I, you didn't mean to, I mean, it's, just, right. it's, it's unreal. So anyway, I digress. Uh, but that's one of the things I love about this is you create certainty, which everyone craves in the workplace. Yeah. So anyway, please continue going down the line. I just, I had to mention that to me, that's a huge ancillary benefit you get whenever you start applying these. Well, so, so Jason, you touched on somewhere that, you know, let's just go there for a second. And that is the point of aligning around principles is to establish. So let's, let's get, let's nerd out for a second. By definition, a principle is a foundation that we hold to be true or it's a belief that we hold to be true. And if we align as a team, if we align around a set of principles, I am, I've now got guideposts Mm. and to use your word consistency, right? Mm. I now have guideposts that we're going to operate between here and here. We're never going to deviate out here. If we do, we'll, we'll deal with it. But as a rule, our foundational beliefs are, we will behave in this way. Are you on this team? Yes. Then you must subscribe to these foundational beliefs. Uh, because you know, I'm not naive. Uh, many of the we's they're not rocket science. It's not, it's not mind blowing, uh, uh, narratives here, but when they're combined to be a series of principles that we align ourselves around, then we can take on any challenge because we know how we're going to approach each of them. So yeah, I agree with you on that, on that front. And I think that's an important, let me just digress one step further is, uh, we talked earlier about mission statements and values and purpose. Those are all very, very important for an organization, but rarely do they speak to the employee or team member on a daily basis. Right. Uh, we talked about CVS for a moment, um, um, a, a moment ago, and you know, CVS has this mission statement that they are helping Americans on their path, or help, yeah, helping people, helping people on their path to better health, which is a which is a, a beautiful goal. I mean, it's how could you not agree with that? Right. But if I am a call center rep. On a daily basis, how how do I, in a tangible way, back to the ABCs of employee value, how do I do that on a daily basis? In other words, it's really hard for the team member to align around lofty kind of nebular mission statements in their day-to-day activity. Yes, I subscribe to those things, and that's where the principles become so important. These are our foundational beliefs. We behave in this way, which enables our uh, our ability to to help people on their path to better health. So. You know, I get a little passionate about the principles and why principles versus mission statements. And, and, um, so thanks for allowing me to travel down that road. No, I think it's, 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 it's money, man. I mean, it's like, uh, I don't know if you ever read the four disciplines of execution. Uh, okay. It's awesome, dude. It's cause it's all focused on, okay, we can have these big aspirations and goals, which are basically rear view looks, right? I mean, 
Nick Saban wants to win the national championship. Okay, that's either going to happen or it's not. It's really not within his control. The only thing he can control is coaching his team to yeah, function as to the highest ability off the, in that first seven seconds off the snap of the ball. If you do that enough, if you do that right enough, then the score will take care of itself. In an organization, I think it's the same thing. If we can all come together and we can focus on these inputs, you know, we've got this big aspiration helping people on their road to better health. But what are the inputs in the call center that Bingo. I can control that actually have the best, have the most likelihood of resulting in that higher aspiration? And that's what I think so people get so caught up in the, and like you say, the mission statement, the big loft, you go, okay, that's great. But mm-hmm. now break it down to your world, not the things outside your circle, the thing in your circle that you actually can control. Relatable. Yep. Right. That if you if you crush it on those inputs enough consistently that, boom, it will move the needle to that big aspiration. Well so yep. I, I think well that's said. money, man. That's the connection. So listen, if, if we're going to take action and we acknowledge there are going to be mistakes, um, we've got to be in a position that, that, that um, takes us to we six. We pick each other up. Love it. Two components of we pick each other up. But but let me back up first, though. So if, if you're in an environment that says, see something, do something, right? That's the we take action. And oh, by the way, if you make a mistake, you know, that, that, that's okay. This, that's the environment that we're, that we're creating here. That's our, that's, our, uh, that's our paradigm. But we know when a mistake is made or I fumble... I'm not, I don't really feel good about myself, no, no matter how right. uh, warm and inviting the environment is or the culture is. Uh, we all need to be picked up from time to time. Um, and, that, and that's why I'm really overt in the book to say, you know, picking each other up is just an obligation of a leader. N- not a boss, not someone with direct reports, the leader. Uh, someone with no direct reports can lean across the aisle or down the aisle and say, you know, Jason, I know you're having a rough day. I know that presentation didn't go as well as you'd like it uh, to have gone. But listen, man, I'm here for you. Right. We've all stumbled. Let me tell you about the time I blew a presentation. Right. Being there is is really, really incumbent on a leader. But it's, it doesn't end there. Um, if I am going to be the leader that picks you up when you stumble, Jason, I also need to be the leader that helps you get to new heights. And that and what do I mean by that? So Uh, Let's pretend we're in a scenario that you're on my team. You come to me, you say, Kyle, man, I'm thinking about posting for this role. I want to apply for this job somewhere else in the organization. It is, I should scream from the mountaintops on your behalf. Mm -hmm. I should, I should advocate for you because if I really care about you and how you perform within our team, my, my care should not be limited to how you perform for my team. My care should be limited to you. And whether you want to do more, how do I put you in a position to be more successful, have greater impact, uh, find more passion, find purpose in your role? So, uh, and if you don't do that, by the way, or, or if you do one versus the other, you're a hypocrite. Yeah. Uh, you cannot preach to someone that you really care about their growth, but not pick them up when they stumble. And likewise, if you don't pick them up when they stumble, you certainly can't preach or help them with their growth. So I think it's incumbent to, to, to face both sides of that coin. Now, when we, when we pick each other up, um, uh, continuing down, down the path here, and that's uh, we seven, is uh, we measure ourselves by outcomes, not activity. Um, and this is where I can get a little wordy, so you may have to cut me off. But No, because it's you know, so important. So go well, it was, it. I get <laughs> you, it. You know, after, after so many years of, 
and I hate to say it, but the bigger organizations really struggle more, more so with this than the smaller ones, you know, smaller ones sometimes are fly by the seat of your pants and, and you you can only focus on outcomes. Uh, yeah, but at a, big or, at a big organization, you can look like you're doing a lot of crap. And as long as you look really, it's like, it's like me on a ski slope, dude, I look like I can crush it. And I look like, man, it's like, I don't know, just leave him alone. I mean, look at him. He's crushing the Canadian goose in those boots. My God. Boy, he looks good, right? Wow. He looks amazing. He's got to be special. Just leave that guy alone. You can get away with that in his organization, just doing a bunch of stuff. You know, you're my, my buddy, uh, Colin and I used to always say, you're, you're, you're just TC being all over the place, baby. Just taking care of business. You're, you're tearing down the floodgates, which makes no sense on purpose. You're building structure around things. You're giving sniff tests. You're driving things. You know, you're creating synergies. Uh, but the outcomes, yeah, not so much. So anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's that's a plague, man. It's uh, it's a real problem. By the way, uh, I've, I've worked with executives. Uh, while they wouldn't admit it, they made a they made a purposeful decision to live that life. Yeah. But they made a decision to just, you know what, if I just keep my head down, I don't, I don't cause a lot of ruckus. I don't push back on the, on the boss. I don't issue challenges. You know, I could probably make a pretty good living, especially in these giant companies. Yeah. Right? So that's, you know, and, and that's, I get it. Uh, it is, it is the easy way out. Um, but as you know, and we'll get to this in a moment, um, you know, without, without challenge, there's no progress. I'm not, I'm no better. Uh, for just keeping my head down and just kind of ru- uh, running with the status quo. That's, that's soul sucking to me. Absolutely. Uh, to be in a role that's kind of lather, rinse, repeat. So what, what, what is really pervasive though is this notion and you, you nailed it, but it's this notion that my, the level of my busyness, if I have a packed calendar, <laughs> um, if I have 27 voicemails to get back to, that's, that equates to and signifies progress and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, so I say it like this, if you cannot connect an activity to a business goal or a milestone or something tangible that we deliver as a product or service to the customer, it should be questioned, I like that. you know, and I'm, by the way, I'm not implying activity to be unimportant. Certainly is important. For example, well, uh, I'm really happy that my Uber driver gets gas before he picks me up. You know, that's an activity, <laughs> right. right? That's an activity that he or she must have undertaken to make sure they fulfill on the outcome. And that's the, that's the ride that I, that I grabbed from them. Um, and a packed calendar and meeting after meeting signifies uh, that you're just busy. It doesn't necessarily signify that you're driving outcomes on one or both of two fronts. And that is to advance the mission of the team, put the team in a position to be successful or advance the position of the company. Um, so I, you know, that's where I get really um, kind of, I get a little directive with my teams in the past to say, uh, why are you doing this? Um, you know, if we have a meeting, for example, that's a recurring meeting and people just show up because it's on their calendar, you got to question why the heck are we in here? And by the way, it's okay to question others of meetings that you didn't schedule. If you're in a meeting, by the way, and it's, it's not going well, or it's kind of, you got the scope creep thing happening, which usually results in scheduling another meeting. Um, you have to, it's incumbent on a leader to say, wait, we're here to solve X, Y, Z, but we're way down the path of something else, guys. Let's reel it back in. Or, so got, or or create an atmosphere. I guess it's David Allen who talks about this in his book, Getting Things Done, to be able to say, hey, am I really needed here? Am I going to be able to help you out here? Because if yeah. not, and be a leader that can hear somebody say, so, oh, who the hell do you think you are? You don't think you're, no, I just, I want to make sure that, you know, there's an opportunity cost for me being here. And so, if, if you don't need me, I'm going to go crush this other thing because that's going to make you look better at the end of the day. But if we all get this thing done, right? It's just, Jason, you, you, you didn't even realize it, but what you did there is you led by example. 
Yeah. If you're in that environment, right, you're back to we number two. If you're in that environment, you're, you're questioning, am I adding value to this? Why am I here? It's okay to ask that you're question right. out loud. Now, the, 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 the leader or person lacking self-confidence is not going to ask that question, right? Uh, you, you, are you a Tom Bill, you fan, you familiar oh, with impact theory? Hell yeah. You, you with your glasses, you kind of got a Tom and you're, you're, you know, you're obviously in good shape, dude. You mean, you, you, oh, you obviously, well. you got, you got a Tommy B thing going on there, you know? Well, <laughs> I, I, that's a compliment. It's a hell of a compliment. Hell yeah, um, man. So yeah, I, I, I'll never forget, man. There was a time, uh, on one of his, uh, I don't know if it was the podcast or on the show. Anyway, he was very confident to admit throughout several years, at the beginning of his, his leadership journey. He was intimidated to volunteer anything inside of a meeting. He was intimidated to throw his hand up. He was intimidated to say anything. And he got to the point where his only contribution to a day, many days, was at the end of a meeting. He would say, okay, thanks, guys, before he would sign off. That was his contribution. So there's a self-confidence issue. And by the way, he talks glowingly about how he was able to overcome that. My point there is, is he was focused on activity by doing what? Just attending the meeting, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, obviously, he's in a different place today. But I, again, I would challenge everyone to say, is this meeting adding value? Is what I'm doing adding value? There is a caveat here, though, right? So there are always compliance obligations. There's legal obligation. Those are things we can't skirt, right? That's back sure. to doing the right thing. And sometimes those activities may feel disjointed or disconnected from outcomes, but they're a requirement we got to do it. So I don't mean to imply that everything must be activity or outcome or and never the tween shall meet, but um, be purposeful about the activities is kind of the ultimate, the ultimate be all end all for this. We absolutely, absolutely. So how do we challenge ourselves diplomatically? Cause this is a tough one I've had. And you know, early in my career, brother, just because I do, there's one particular incident where a guy just rubbed me the wrong way. Sure. And, I jumped his ass in a way, and, and, dude, I'll tell you what made me feel so terrible about it. It wasn't because he got pissed or upset. He pulled me aside, and he said, you know, the way you just spoke to me in front of those people, he said, it really, it really disappointed me. He said, because I look up to you, and Ooh. as a matter of fact, I expect for you to be the, the CEO of this company one day. And he said, so I just want you to know you really let me down. Dude, he, he crushed me. There's nothing he could have said that would have hurt me in, in a very needed way, the way it did, because I did. I spoke to him in a way you should never speak to another colleague. So I think this one, challenging each other diplomatically, is something I had to learn the hard way. Yeah. What is your take? Um, well said, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a story as well. But um, the premise of we challenge each other is it's back to that growth mindset. And the growth mindset doesn't end on a personal level. The Amen. team should always have a growth mindset. The, the company needs to have a growth mindset. And you can't accomplish growth by definition. You can't accomplish growth without something happening prior to that growth. You want to you want a bigger bicep, you got to agitate that muscle. That's right. Right? You want to learn Spanish, you want to learn, you want to become bilingual or trilingual or whatever the case is, you've got to put in the work. Every single thing in life, uh, and it's really, really personified in a team environment, must come via a challenge or else. Everybody would do it. If it was easy, it'd be done already. And and it's just, there's no outcome. There's no improvement. So um, the challenge, pun intended, with we challenge each other is doing it in a way that doesn't alienate the person on the other end. Um, And by the way, this is also an obligation. Challenging is an obligation, not to, not just leader to team member, but leader to leader, uh, leader to peer. It's, it's omnidirectional, right? Everyone needs to live with this, with this paradigm because I might recognize something in your shop 
that needs has an opportunity or needs to be addressed. Um, and if I'm not given the ability or the right, for lack of a better word, to actually challenge you on that opportunity, you're going to rest on your laurels. Yep. You're, you're going to, you know, you have basically what's called the incumbents curse, right? You're just so happy with what you've delivered that you're not open to maybe a little tougher approach for a, a exponentially greater outcome. So we've got to live every day. Uh, uh, by the way, I should also mention, we take action is very closely related to this, but I want to point out the nuanced difference. We take action is if I recognize something that I have an opportunity to improve in my organization or in my shop or within my team, we challenge each other is when I recognize an opportunity somewhere else that I don't have ownership of, or I, that responsibility doesn't sit on my team. It's pointing out to someone, Hey, you know, you might want to consider X, Y, Z, but how do you avoid it becoming personal? Uh, which is always the challenge, right? Absolutely. Um, and, uh, to continue the pun, the challenge is overcome by making sure you challenge the other person on two grounds or two fields, two filters only, nothing outside. And that is, is the challenge based in data or founded in data or is it founded in experiential? Uh, I history? love that because I, I love that. So, right, I can't, I can't just challenge you on something that I disagree with. That, yeah. that benefits no one. But if, we're, if we have a new product that we're considering or we're traveling down an implementation path and we're wrestling with a decision, if someone on the team has lived that same decision somewhere in their, in their past, that's experience that we need to know about. Um, so I need to, that person should be comfortable to say, listen, man, we stumbled at my old company. We did the same thing. We stumbled like crazy. That experience should be heard. Likewise, if I bring data to the table that says nine out of 10 times, what you're about to do is going to break something. We should <laughs> damn well listen to that person, right? That data needs to speak. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned a scenario where you, 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 you jumped on a, a fella who, who kind of, um, who I think his reaction was beautiful, by yeah. the way, to not to not sink to to that low of a level. Like he responded yeah. and said, "Man, you disappointed me." He got you where it hurt by saying that he looked up to you. Absolutely. Um, here's here's I want to circle back to that lead by example uh, throwback that I mentioned when I first rolled out the ten we's um, at Maximus. There was an individual on my team who she knows I shared this story openly. Now, as a matter of fact. I was back at Maximus to give a talk a few weeks ago and she introduced me and part of her introduction was saying, you know, Kyle and I, we, ne we didn't get along very well at first. <laughs> so to bring this full circle, um, she challenged me at every, so I rolled these principles out and she continued to challenge me at every level. I asked for X, I would get X minus or maybe X plus, but I didn't get X. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was clear to me she was being difficult because I was the new guy and it just, some people just, I guess, take pride in that. I don't know. Um, I consider her to be one of my closest friends today. Because if I had reacted in a way that you reacted, mm -hmm. bridge likely burned, maybe mm -hmm. you can come back for that, not sure. I'd, I would have been a hypocrite. Mm -hmm. I would have been uh, preaching all these qualities of how important this team environment is. But when, when the going gets rough and someone disagrees with me, I shoot them down. I've become a boss then instead of, so mm -hmm. I allowed that to play out. And years later, like I say, we are really great friends. Um, as a matter of fact, her, she, she went from managing a few hundred employees to having about 10,000 employees wow. because in that role, I created an environment where we pick each other up. And part of that picking each other up was in my staff meetings, everyone was obligated to communicate what they thought around other people's updates. Cause you know that. how this works. Usually Absolutely. Jason, right? you have these staff meetings, everyone goes through their readout, but there's really not a lot of cross communication. The boss is absorbing it all, but there's no, I lived that once. Mm -hmm. you know, it was very, it's because people don't necessarily feel comfortable doing so, but a challenge without we number nine, we embrace challenge 
is anarchy. Absolutely. Right. So I would, I would never want to be the, in a position where I'm leading and building a culture of excellence and saying, we must challenge each other. If I wasn't really overt and saying, you got to embrace the challenge as well. And that's why I brought up the story of the woman I mentioned earlier, a moment ago, her name is Julia was if I didn't embrace the challenges she was throwing back at me, everything I've communicated in this, everything I'm evangelizing is a fraud. So if you're going to be in a position to challenge others and you want this culture of excellence to where everyone's challenging when they see an opportunity to improve, you cannot have anything other than a formal embrace of those challenges. Yep. Because what's the worst thing that happened? You either learn something and you improve upon something or you give someone an opportunity to kind of air or discuss what they think is an option. And then they learn something because you're not going to travel down that path because their idea didn't pan out for whatever the reason is. And by the way, you have to be very purposeful in sharing when people's ideas go well. You have to be very purposeful and sharing to that person directly when their idea doesn't pan out because uh, otherwise they're going to sit quiet and never bring another opportunity to you. Absolutely. Uh, so it's just as important to communicate where we're traveling as where we're not traveling and the why behind that. So you've got to embrace that challenge. Otherwise, it's anarchy. People going around challenging everyone else. <laughs> uh, and, and this is these are the probably the two toughest we's to implement. And that is, you know, we challenge each other and we embrace challenge because it puts people in a position of being uncomfortable. And that's where that self-confidence we talked about earlier is so, so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I think one of the ones I struggle with the most is, is the number 10. We obsess over details. <laughs> details matter a lot, dude. I'm here. I'm so here. terrible with details. Talk about that yeah. a little bit. Well, um, so if, we, if we've traveled down this entire we path, right, where we're starting to do the right thing all the way through the challenge each other, embracing challenge, we're now on the doorstep of a culture of excellence. But a culture of excellence only only aspires to deliver excellence. Will we fall short? Absolutely we will, no doubt about it. But we should never aspire to do anything less than obsessing over details to be excellent. I talk about an example in the book that I'm probably gonna repeat until, I'm, until I just stop, stop this stuff. And that is the leader needs to obsess to the level of, obsess over details to the level at which their organization, more specifically their budget will allow. Mm -hmm. It doesn't cost money to obsess over wowing a customer. Sure, there are ways to spend money to do that, but it doesn't cost anything to treat someone with respect and dignity. It doesn't cost someone to ask them how their day is going. But the example I use that I, that I think is so perfect for this is, you know, the manager of a Motel 6, you know, that, you know, it's a lower, it's a, it's a budget hotel, we should sure. say, right? They probably want to have thousand thread count sheets mm -hmm. at the hotel because they know it will improve the member, the guest experience, the guests will rave about it, it's, it's great. A Motel 6 doesn't have the budget for 1,000 thread count sheets. They have the budget for 200 or 100 thread count sheets. It's incumbent on the leader to obsess over how they treat that sheet, how perfectly it's folded, the creases, how clean it is. All of those points of obsession must still exist as if it is a 1,000 thread count sheet, right? Amen. So, you know, and, and, and I just think it's important to be really overt about it. My team... Uh, at Maximus, they would call me the shredder. And I, I ultimately became, I, I thought it was a term of endearment after time. And the shredder came because they would bring me presentations or we'd go over a presentation that we we're about to give to our client or whatever the case is. And I'd be like, Hey, that font on page seven is a different size than the font on page 11. They're like, Kyle, does it matter? Yes, it matters. Yep. Because if we obsess over that level of detail, th th that's the foundation yep. for everything we deliver. And if we cut corners at this level, there, 
I cannot expect people to be aligned around delivering excellence for the really big things. So I, I took on the name of the shredder. Um, but I tell you, I think the level of product in terms of presentation, just externally facing documents, how they treat each other, um, how they train uh, inside of this organization, I think is far better because of that attention to detail. Dude, I, I'm, I had a boss like you. I was actually in a partnership with him, and he was, you know, primary shareholder of this uh, startup, the one that we did work for Enron, David Wise. If David, if you ever listen to the show, brother, here's a compliment coming your way. He was like that, Hello. Kyle. I mean, he would push back on my work all the time. And I w- it was sloppy work. I mean, I was young, and I'm not an attention-to-detail guy. David made me so much better. It was like going out and playing tennis with someone that's so much better than you. If <sighs> if you're willing to, uh, dude, if you're willing to allow it to, it will raise your game. Absolutely. You're not going to raise to the level of, you know, you know, uh, Philip Pete Sampras. Well, that's uh, dating myself, you know, but Federer. Federer there you go. Timely, right? You're yeah. not yet. Yeah, you're not going to raise to that level, but you're going to make me better because I'm going to be on my A game and I'm going to be a little bit nervous about what I present to you, I'm going to take more caution. So David Wise made me so much better by Love being that. to me the way you were to your employees because, and those who I guarantee you, dude, there are employees that you coached, trained, you know, uh, led that are having those David Wise conversations about you. And I, I, it, I, I could not agree more. One of the things that <clears throat> I invested in restaurants a while back, and one of the things I used to tell our staff members there, I said, we've got to create fans, not just customers. People in a restaurant, exactly what you said about the Motel 6. If you will love on your customers enough and show them your appreciation, and, and, and again, controlling those things within your, you can't serve them right. Wagyu fajitas at, uh, at, a, at a mid-range little regional restaurant. Yep. But if you can make them feel good, they will overlook or at least tolerate. Yes, a lot of the things that they know you can't make up for because the things that are within your control, they can see you are doing everything in your power. That's right. To take care of it. It just, so I love that detail thing mainly because it's something I suck so bad at for so long and it's still a challenge for me for sure. Well, you know, there's just one other quick example I'll give you because folks struggle with how obsessed to be. Mm. Um, and they say, but it's only a fraction of this, or it's, you know, just a portion of that. And I, and I, and I respond with, you know, if I'm, if I'm putting a, a brick wall together and let's say that brick wall requires a thousand bricks, but one of my bricks at the base is slightly askew that, that, that askew brick is going to cascade itself. Well, not cascade, but it'll go up with the entire wall as the wall Great goes example. up right? at the, at the very end. You've got one of a thousand creating this chain of events that require that that ends in not being the perfectly symmetrical level wall that we aspired to build at the beginning, and you say, "Well, it's one of one thousand. That's not a big deal. It's like right. It's way less than one percent, but it had a huge impact on the outcome of that product. So yep. the details are the details, um, but you just got to be smart about obsessing over it, right? Do I want to spend three hours writing an email to my team? No. Um, do I want to spend more than a couple of minutes looking at something that goes to our clients? Absolutely. Uh, do I want to spend more time on developing my people and the level of detail that I focus on what they want to do? Absolutely. That's, that's critical, but you can't go too far. So that's why you just got to have that internal conversation is this adding value activity versus outcome. But let me ask you this. When you had employees that took that challenge of (laughs) obsessing over details from you, applied it. And after the second or third proposal with them, did you start to go, 
I'm still going to look at this because I'm a detailed guy, but I know I can look at it with less scrutiny because they have proven themselves to me, thus short-circuiting that person's work with you. You nailed it. That, that's the crime in not obsessing over details. I tell a story in a book that I'll never forget. Uh, my team and I were in a room presenting to a prospective client about it. Well, they were a client, but trying to expand our business with them. Mm-hmm. And it was about an 18, 20 page presentation. And on the second page, the gentleman presenting his name's Brian was presenting and he got to a data point that our client, uh, challenged. She, she didn't agree. She didn't think that data point was accurate. So this is not a new client. She was an existing client that knew the data. Mm-hmm. We dug in, we said it was right. Uh, she shut down and she did not listen <clears throat> to another page or another word that came. It was obvious. I mean, arms folded, head down, just, just just being polite to stay in the room with us. The point there is exactly what you said, Jason, is you create an environment of if this is wrong, why should I believe anything else you're saying? Likewise, if I can tell you've put the care and nurturing into this document, because it is at the end of the day, the level of obsession uh, into your work product really is indicative of the level of care you give for your customers or the care you give for your team, right? So uh, if you obsess over those, if you don't obsess over those details, the, the first minor detail is just the opening of the floodgates to everything else that you're under delivering for me. At least I don't, I don't trust it. Right. I agree. Kyle, dude, this has been awesome, man. I mean, yeah, it's been a blast. Th- hasn't it? Oh, it, this has been so fun talking shop and, and thinking about some things that I haven't thought about. And, and, you know, like one of the things and look, under, you understand corporate humor. That's one of the best part. Like I can sit here. I was just holding this back. I want to go. So what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is on the, uh, the, the being diplomatic part that we're not going to have an airing of grievances. I mean, if we have someone who, who has, who celebrates Festivus, we're not going to get out the, the metal pole and have the airing of grievances that's frowned upon is what you're saying. That's I mean, right. You know, that's, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> oh, dude. So. It can't be subjective. No, it's, uh, it's been a blast, Jason. I think, I think, I mean, it's, I'm the first to admit again, uh, I have not cracked the code on, on, on culture. What I have cracked the code on is aligning around principles that get the team to see that they're part of something bigger, reward them for really working hard and reward them for putting, putting the team in a position to be successful. That's what these principles do. It's not theoretical. I've seen it work, um, uh, more than once. Um, and I'm just really thrilled to have the opportunity to share the messaging with as many people who are open to hearing it. Awesome, brother. All right, so how do people, where do people find the book? How do they contact you? How do they stay in touch with you? I mean, if there's people out here, I mean, I'm hoping that, you know, there's at least three Fortune 500 companies that are out there listening going, we have got to get Kyle in here too sweet with a hundred of his books. How do people get in touch with you, man? Uh, Easily. Every platform is Kyle McDowell, Inc. Uh, My website's Kyle McDowell, Inc. as well. Uh, hit me on any of the, in any social platform, but also just uh, email email me directly. The contact information is on the website as well. I'm I'm here to help. Awesome, brother Kyle. This has been a blast. Don't be a stranger. I want to get you back on here. Let's talk shop anytime and anything that I or this audience can do to help you. I'll go ahead and volunteer. All the people listening, we're behind you. We're in your corner, brother. And uh, that. best of luck. Keep crushing it with the book. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Great Well, hey, folks, that does it for this episode of The Jason Wright Show. This has been a Texas Titan Media production. Hey, do me a favor. Go out and order Kyle's book, Begin With We. If you are an organizational leader, even if you're a department head, if you are building or leading a team, this book is a must-read. 
Also, don't forget to go out to jasonrightnow.com and sign up for the Vitruvian Letter. That is my weekly newsletter where I just bring together all sorts of things that I'm trying to do to improve always and always. And finally, if you wouldn't mind, subscribe to the YouTube channel, start a conversation there, and then go out to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm out.